Today we're talking about the ubiquity of law enforcement and learning what it means to be e-carcerated no matter where you go. That is Telekinetic. Ahoy hoy! I am Mitch, you are here, and Brett Stout is in Brooklyn, where he heads the PhD program in critical psychology at the City University of New York. Brett's been studying the impact of policing in NYC for over a decade and sits on the steering committee of Communities United for Police Reform. He's going to give us a peek into the omnipresence of police through ever-evolving technologies and how America's taxpayers unwittingly became the investors, customers, and commodities of law enforcement. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Brett Stout. Hello, hello, hello. All right, sir. Well, again, thank you for uh, coming on the show. Good to see your face, which is, uh, this is the first time I've seen a guest face, actually. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Great seeing your face. So the reason I wanted to have you on is that the technology that law enforcement has been getting its hands on over the past, uh, in my mind, decade, maybe it's been longer as as far as your knowledge goes, has allowed it to be in more places at once than it's ever been before, arguably ubiquitous, hence the, the panopticon of it all, right? So as it relates to this podcast, first of all, what those technologies are, so we kind of identify them because I think a a big part of the problem you'll go into, right, is that a lot of the public doesn't know that it's funding this or it doesn't even know how the police are getting money to fund these things. And then the the difficulties around actually managing and understanding and applying those technologies and what that means for us. So I guess that's my first question is is just kind of like, can you rattle off some of these more interesting, quote unquote, uh, technologies that law enforcement is getting its hands on nowadays? So, you know, I understand myself this is a caveat. I understand myself as a local academic or a local scholar, meaning, uh, you know, I've studied policing and policing tactics and surveillance for over a decade, but my primary focus is the NYPD. I live in New York City. So, you know, my localized vision and framing will be through New York. The NYPD leads some of this in many ways, not only across the country, but the world, but just want to put that caveat out there. Yeah. Uh, and also I understand I'm a psychologist, so I understand, you know, I'm interested in things, for example, like a concept called technologies of the self, you know, a pencil was a technology. Uh, right. and you know, the printing press is of, it was obviously a technology and each time there are new technologies, it, re- it shapes and reshapes us. So yeah. I understand this long arc that starts with, you know, chattel slavery through Jim Crow through, you know, the expansion of the, the carceral state as a, a series of technolo- uh, technological advances. So fingerprints, a police car, uh, yeah. you know, from being on a horse, right? Uh, using floodlights. These are as basically as technology in the world has advanced, particularly in militarized technology through World War II, uh, Vietnam. And now we see, you know, the, our long war. 
the technologies that are gained through like sort of uh, militarized efforts often find their way into policing. So I just wanted to, you know, kind of frame where I'm at with technology and then <clears throat> just rattling off the amount of technology hidden in many ways. I think a lot of people would be surprised what police departments have right now. It's kind of stunning, but yeah. I can give you a bunch. So starting off just with your idea of the panopticon, you know, through that Foucaultian panopticon, uh, we have these surveillance towers in New York City. I mean, they look like the literal definition of a panopticon. You know, they're about 20, 30 feet high. <laughs> uh, they're, they're roving. They're positioned in neighborhoods. They can see up and down streets. They have lights, cameras, digital technologies, right? They're able to detect speed. So these, the windows are also just like a panopticon. They're also shaded. So you don't know if someone's in there or not. Uh, so there's yeah. surveillance towers. There are uh, floodlights. I know it doesn't seem like much, but it's uh, in terms of omnipresent policing, one of the, the most common complaints because essentially big floodlights, you know, throughout streets or projects that essentially make it impossible for people to sleep. You know, they have to put up special curtains because essentially it just feels like daylight out. Um, but that's mm. to me, that's a form of technology, even if it's not the most advanced. They, we have militarized helicopters in New York City that have GPS technology. They, have, they can zoom in from where they are. They can observe faces and objects. They have heat detection in them. Uh, and of course, searchlights. There are other things that we don't know that are in them. It's like we know that we don't know that there are other advancements <laughs> that, um, that are not available. Yeah. But, you know, pretty, pretty intense. Well, and, you know, yeah, if you want to talk about technology trickling down from military use, which uh, ironically is um, a point that uh, was brought up in an episode about advertising. <laughs> um, about my, you know, my favorite questions, well, favorite's a weird word, but uh, my most memorable uh, experience with new age police tech was, uh, I'm forgetting the year and the type of summit G7 or G5 or whatever summit in Pittsburgh. And I think like 2010 or something that was there. I think it was the first ever use on civilians of um, LRAD, which is that uh, basically a sound cannon. It's basically pointed sound, very loud sound to the point that you could stand like 25 feet to the left or right of it and like barely hear it. Uh, but if you were right in the middle of it, it's basically deafening and can cause um, like permanent damage. And what was preposterous about it was that it was invented for, you know, military use to basically create this cone of protection for naval ships so that pirates and, and whoever else wouldn't enter that area because the, the natural, I actually think the technology is kind of cool on its face and in, in that the way it works is you police yourself. Like as you get towards the sound, it gets louder and more disturbing. And so you will never actually enter the dangerous part of the region that it's covering. And so you will never actually reach the point of becoming a threat because you don't want to be in the area where the sound is occurring. And the way the police use it in Pittsburgh was they just turned it on and pointed it at people, which is like, I have to imagine is like page fucking one on the user manual of like what not to do. Yeah. Stingrays. This is one of my favorite cars. What the hell are those? Uh, have you ever heard of stingrays? Yeah. No. Stingrays simulate cell phone towers. 
they're inside NYPD cars and you can put them in other things as well. And so essentially, if you're at a protest, these stingrays trick your phone in, into essentially connecting to the NYPD cell phone tower that's in their car or in other places. And therefore, they're able to get a whole set of metadata, um, telephone numbers, their conversations, um, text messages. So, I mean, here's a case where, you know, I think a big theme that keeps coming up over and over again is that in terms of our policies and laws catching up to what technology can do in terms of protecting us, our Fourth Amendment rights, you know, our ability not to, you know, be searched to kind of keep the state out of our business, right? When you think about this, you have no say. You have no idea that your phone is being retraced back to Stingrays. Um, yeah. But they're, they're, they're very common now. My new favorite beyond Stingrays is this new thing called X-ray bands that the NYPD has. And it's essentially, it's a... Uh, right. It's a... Uh, roving band that the that uses that is able to analyze sort of x-rays bouncing off objects as they drive around and so they can see inside vehicles and behind walls using these x-rays again you're thinking of the fourth amendment you have no ability not to allow them to see through a wall uh, in terms of privacy but our laws haven't caught up to this so that's real that stuff that stuff i've seen on tv is is real that's happening yeah <laughs> uh and then there's a whole line of new policing that look a bit like Minority Report, that movie that came out it's called Predictive Policing. It uses big data, algorithmic, mathematical models uh, to essentially predict within square miles or square footage uh, where crimes are most likely to happen. These, these equations were built off of predictions for like earthquake models. Mm. And so you need the tremors going up and down. You need rhythmic type of crime. Uh, patterns, which, you know, they would argue that uh, burglaries might fall into that, you know, but they apply it broadly. Uh, it's a proprietary system and it has historically been racially biased. And of course, you know, uh, garbage in, garbage out for any of these equations. They're just yeah. using public data. Right. Well, especially, I mean, if so much of it is going into predictive policing, right, then that's the potential, the, you know, the threat behind it is like, okay, well then you're, if you're getting ahead of behaviors, then you're influencing, you're influencing the environment. So that, that comes with a lot of responsibility around what, what exactly you're doing to the future. So all that said, to me, the kind of obvious questions anyone might ask is one, where the hell do they get all this stuff from, like from a funding perspective? And then two, how are, and you've gone into some of it already, but I think it's worth going into it in a lot more detail. Like how can this go wrong? Why is it, why have we seen evidence of it going wrong? And what are some of the, what are some of the remedies or paths past that? And as someone who works in transportation, I'm just going to literally read you an, ex an example that I found rather egregious from a couple of years ago. And this is from the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation's budget. So I'm actually just going to literally read you a paragraph here. Auditor General Eugene DePasquale unveiled an audit of PennDOT that found the agency at the direction of the state legislature has diverted $4.25 billion from the motor license fund to state police over the last six years, even though under the state constitution, 
proceeds should be used for the construction, maintenance, and repair of highways and bridges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, I, I mean, the uh, armchair lawyer in me gets how that could happen. Like, hey, we're developing bridges and highways, and some element of that requires safety. Safety means police. This money should go to police. I, I, I get how it could be done. My question is like, reasonably speaking, how does that, how does that seem to happen where police just get money out of all different kinds of budgets with no explanation around, around it or justification? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the police are, the police are, are a a very popular institution. You know, I I mean, for, for many, many years now, um, politicians, you know, have sort of doubled down on police equals safety, police equals security. Yeah. And politically, that's been a winning argument. People want to feel safe. The, the equation of police equals safety is, you know, built into our nighttime, you know, watching on TV, uh, our mythology over decades. And we've also had four decades of an increase in the carceral state, you know, that has been allowed to happen through additional funding. So... There is no other game in town. You know, once you've, as we have, decided in the central need of law enforcement to solve the varied problems of however we define disorder in our society, then it's a, it's a, it's a beast with growing tentacles. Yeah. The expansion of law enforcement um, into basically everything. So in New York City, there are contracts with, the Department of Education. And so the DOE gets money and a significant amount of that money then gets transferred right over to the NYPD. Uh, in public housing, in homeless shelters, in, you know, hospitals, right. in essentially wherever, whatever institutions, wherever they need some level of security, safety, patrol, that connection is built uh, and surveillance oftentimes has only made that easier. And so the relationships, the partnerships with other institutions has expanded and therefore law enforcement and it's yeah. that sort of those sort of tentacles have expanded. It's almost like the, the reverse hammer nail relationship where certain entities are trying to convince everyone, Hey, doesn't this look like a nail? Oh, by the way, we have a hammer over here in the police. So it's like the more you can convince people something is a nail, the easier it is to apply funding to, uh, to use the hammer to solve that nail. Uh, and that's, you know, that's one of the arguments of the, the defund policing movement, which is we need other tools in the tool belt and that police are being asked to uh, be social workers, be mental health professionals, you know, be asked to do a, uh, a whole set of things that they're not particularly well-trained for, well-suited for. Or incentivized for, right? I mean. Or incentivized for and shouldn't be used because anytime the police are involved, there is the threat of uh, incarceration, uh, a criminal record, violence, up to death. Uh, And as it's increased, I think you've seen people on both sides of the aisle, now I'm talking again politically, uh, find it to be too problematic, however you define problematic. 
Republicans might say it's costing too much. Uh, you know, Democrats might say, um, you know, it's it's been uh, harmful to communities of color and have, you know, criminalized whole communities for too long. Uh, and there are many other arguments in there, but there's been a general, some level of consensus that it's gotten too large. And in fact, it has been in some places shrinking. Um, but what we're then finding is, is that in its place is this new types of surveillance that, as you put it, are, uh, are able to kind of surveil large areas uh, with a lot of information, with not a lot of personnel. And so what we're finding then is what is being called e-carceration. Essentially now whole communities are community prisons. Essentially your, your entire, your whole day, think of young people, they wake up, they're living in a building uh, that is being surveilled in various ways. And then they walk to school and they're being surveilled. They're in school, they're being surveilled. They walk out of school, they're being surveilled. They go into a store, they're being surveilled. And with all these mm -hmm. tools and others, it's just basically, it never ends. And we're going to see it more and more uh, as there are diversion programs to prison, as we divest in some ways from the carceral state, or at least that version of the carceral state, you're going to see surveillance technologies expanding at incredibly rapid rates. And I mean, I would go as far to say that the central issue in the next 10, 20, however many years will be uh, policing and surveillance and what it means to decarceration. Interesting. And so you're removing, they're already almost never held accountable. The structures are not set up, at least in New York City, but around the country to hold the police accountable in any real way. And now uh, this is a, this increase in surveillance is creating a new opportunity for the police to look objective and unbiased. And the accountability then lies within the tools. The tools are often proprietary, like the predictive technologies, the predictive policing technologies use algorithms that right. we as citizens cannot see. Yeah, like there's a, actually, I just saw the news, I think yesterday that this company, Flock, who does license plate readers and other stuff like that is just now have basically being distributed nationally on a contract with mm. police. And we see down the line, a lot of these proprietary algorithms or proprietary technologies where if they were owned and produced by the state, we would have some ability to look under the hood. You know, when you talk about this incarceration, right, that is the huge threat is that it's a farce to say, you have nothing to worry about if you're not guilty. It's like guilt is not a switch. Like there's a spectrum along which everyone exists and everyone has probably committed some crime in their life. There's a, a ton of intent that is a variable around why that happens. And so monitoring people 24 seven, especially with that lack of accountability to your point becomes hugely problematic. And I think for a lot of folks who, there are a lot of folks who obviously look upon police fondly, which is understandable. And I think, you know, we can even take it up a level from there and just say, that's fine. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to make this about police being the enemy. Just think about in the grand scheme of interpersonal relationships, folks have a hard time screwing other people over when they have to look them in the eye, right? In, in any given transaction, interpersonal transaction, right? But the more you place an army behind someone or more appropriately in this case, place an army between you and that person the easier it is, right, logistically, psychologically, 
mm. economically to do things that are in your best interest, maybe, you know, to the detriment of, of that other person, not even intentionally necessarily, but to do something that is self-serving and that is disconnected from the mutual benefit of that relationship. Mm. Yes. On the escalation. And the more that we, that surveillance is used and has always been used in various forms and now is just kind of exploding on surveillance on steroids in an omnipresent way, whole communities, particularly black and brown communities, communities of color, poor communities are being surveilled. The, the metaphor of school to prison pipeline is trying to kind of encapsulate that, that everyone creates harm, breaks the law, um, produces disorder in their life. But if you are just always being watched, it can be a small thing, but then that creates a red flag and that keeps increasing, increasing. Uh, and it creates an endless cycle, which surveillance only accentuates uh, into criminalizing whole communities. And the key to that, from my assumption, I don't know about you and your listeners, that's not something we can incrementally reform our way out of, that it's not an unintended consequence. It's a feature. It's mm. doing exactly what it was intended to do. And that with each new, more robust, more powerful, more militarized surveillance, it's just um, increasing and expanding what policing was designed to do. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, we'll get to my hot take in a second here, but a lot of it revolves around the idea of intent. All right. All and, right. Uh, all right. <laughs> yeah, this is good. I, I'm into the hot take. Go for it. The hot take is that I think we need to be policing intent rather than behavior and and understandably behavior is like the the that's the base level thing that you can observe and in the olden days i get the idea that you can only police on behavior but if you're telling me we have all of this magical data and we can and we can predict things right then i want to start policing on intent so that i can say when someone steals a loaf of bread i can understand the difference between them them doing it because they're solving like a base level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs or they're doing it because they're a college frat boy who literally wrote on his Instagram, like, Hey bitch asses, I'm going to go steal a loaf of bread now. Like one of those people is definitely a criminal in my mind. And one of them is not. And I would imagine that data is the key to unlocking that knowledge. And so I guess I'd like you to tell me why it's not and or how it can be. If that makes sense. So I, you know, as a psychologist, this is fascinating, right? I mean, this is philosophical. This is psychological. The idea of intent is infinite and complex. And so, you know, in order to unpack that, I think it'd be super interesting. But uh, one thing to consider is we are as humans really complex cognitively. So we don't always know our intent. That's one thing. We, we can't always reflect on it and exactly communicate it or it can't be measured. Uh, that's one. Two, it's very plausible and often that in a complicated world, we have multiple intents. One could be absolutely because of poverty and one could absolutely because of at the very same time be, you know, selfish pleasure. 
uh, and those can be together. I think the third thing is our intent can be different than the cause in that you might live in a lifetime of structural racism and poverty, but you might understand your intent in any moment in the, in an accumulating life to be one about greed or self-interest and not at all understand it. Um, but the cause that could be, you know, if one would look at their life and someone had that, you know, that God's eye view could understand you coming to that framework of this is, this is who I am. This is what I do. Uh, you know, I have no care about this person. Uh, I want this, I want to do this because it's what I want, whatever, whatever, it, it could be a million things. I mean, you can imagine would look very much like that person should be in jail. But only in, unless you had the God eye view would you be able to understand all the structural forces that went into the reshaping of that intent. So I think on the one hand, any measurement of intent, I, I get the urge, but I think the urge is flawed. Or I think the urge, it's not that the urge is flawed, it's that I think it needs to be recentered. I think we need to, to recenter policing in, or decenter policing in the conversation in order to get at what you're, you're coming to. If we just start from there, then there's a set of logics that go, from, that go down from that, that I could kind of unpack if you want me to, or I could just leave it. At- no, no. Usually the way uh, I end it is by just saying like, is there a thing you want to plug? And unless that's going to be like, attend my class, I assume it's literally this thing, which is like, this is what I want people to know and think about. So you might as well spend time on it. Okay. This is what I want people to know. All right. So here's what I want. Yeah. I'm not plugging anything. I, I, this is what I want your listeners to think about. I want you to think about how much do police actually produce safety where you live? Mm. Right. Uh, it's a taken for granted assumption, but I think we need to start there. You know, it's, they, they have expanded so far. Scope and the power and the size, the footprint of, of police has just expanded so far. But what they do is 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 very minimal. You know, mm. I would argue I'm I'm putting forth, you know, a set of assumptions and arguments for people to, sure, uh, yeah. you know, be angry at and 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 be and disagree <laughs> with. So as as the police have been called in as a solution for everything, they've been called to fix every problem under the sun to be mental health workers, to respond to intimate partner violence, to respond to neighborhood disputes and in homeless shelters and in schools. And they're the only game in town. Mm -hmm. We've already discussed this, but crime is socially constructed, right? Murder is against the law until you're in a, a, a sanctioned war. Yeah. Right. And so crime is not the center to think about. So if we decenter policing from safety for the moment, also decenter your thinking about crime. Mm. It's a social construction. Crime is not the center unit either when we think about what police need to be doing. Ask or rethink crime into thinking about harm, harms in your community. If what on the one hand we're looking at well-being, on the other hand, we also want to prevent or if it happens, repair, have processes for repairing harm to our community. Now, harm can be direct violence. It can be, of course, some versions of, of crime. But most things are not a crime, but are harmful to communities. Right. They're, you know, in the, in the universe of things that harm communities, 
think about the big ones, structural racism, poor healthcare, environmental harm, poverty, uh, industrial level type harms, harms from corporations. Right. Not only white collar crime, um, which is a small part of the violence, but there's all sorts of things that are entirely legal that corporations do that are incredibly harmful to people and communities. The police can't do anything about this. We can't over-police. They can't repair these types of harms, which we want, if the goal is to well-being, we need to reduce harm and we need processes when harm happens to be repaired. So I think if, if you don't hold those two assumptions, then a lot of the other conversations around policing fall short and land you to police reform rather than something more radical. Mm. So then, you know, once you hold at that level, then all sorts of things like white supremacy, capitalism, neoliberalism, these like big words, prisons, policing, the reliance on punishment and our sort of addiction to punishment mm. uh, and what ends up, you know, being state sanctioned violence. They're not, they look, in our society, they look natural. They look inevitable. They look neutral. But they're just social construction. Yeah. Right. You're laughing. Is that because it, 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 no, no, preach. I'm, I'm, I'm going on too much. Am I being, am I being too enthusiastic? No, no, I'm, I'm just saying amen I, I, in silence. <laughs> so, you know, investments are our value statement. Yeah. Um, and investments are in budgets are zero sum games. They're taking that money away from other services, other community, you know, community services that would work, that would produce equal or better outcomes. Not only do we need different types of things that, reduce harm and particularly violent harm in communities that police can't handle. But we also need to invest, take back and reinvest billions and billions of dollars into other resources that can produce the actual uh, safety and thriving communities that we all want to live in. Yeah. That's my big speech. <laughs> yeah. There's just so much potential of it. I think there is. I, I, you know, I th that's, that's really, I think a key takeaway for folks is, as it is with anything else, honestly, but just, you know, the deconstructing of the concepts that you take for granted, uh, or that have been, you know, thrown, thrown at your feet. I think practically folks can even, they can do their part. If you go into, you know, community events or anything like that, you can just take that mental model with you and just say like, okay, this is, you know, if this is a, a meeting about, you know, I've been in these meetings, these kind of meetings before myself, right? These are meetings about, should we deploy, uh, you know, scooters in, uh, electric scooters in the, in the city or whatever? Oh, someone has to be here from public safety. Mm -hmm. Well, a that's police, which is already a kind of a strange statement on its own that they've been called public safety when they're actually police. And then B like, well, you know, is, is that who should be here? Right. And then it, by the same token, like if you're in a community meeting where people are complaining, as you mentioned earlier about environmental, you know, industrial environmental waste and pollution and things of that nature. You know, if you're all sitting there as a community saying you, you know, this, uh, this chemical plant is producing uh, toxic waste that is, you know, damaging our, our children uh, and our own welfare, police, why are police not there? You know, if that's your argument is that police are here to stop harm, why are police not here representing right. the community uh, right. against this, this employer? And if that's not, if that doesn't suffice for you, then by the same token, it shouldn't suffice to say we need to bring police when we talk about how the community is going to be behaving or, or what we're monitoring the community, because it's really about, it's really about that harm, as you're saying, and not about crime, so to speak, which as you also pointed out is its own construct that 
is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you put stuff on the books that says these are crimes and those benefit a certain group of people, then yeah, why would they want to change that structure? <laughs> why would they ever want to deconstruct the notion of crime if the notion of crime has been built around other people doing, doing bad things? So yeah, I don't know. It, it's, it, it's a great perspective that, that you shared there, but I think it's also something that's easy to, to internalize as you go about your day in the community. So I appreciate it. My two cents, Mitch. That's all I've got for you. I love it, man. It's been <laughs> it's been really insightful as I as I knew it would be. No, I'd love to talk more. I, I'm honored that you even thought of me. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we can grab an, an actual beer in an actual place soon and uh, talk about this some more. Because yeah, I have a whole, I mean, my real hot take is that religion fuels a lot of this. And um, I don't, I don't, I don't want to become super unpopular <laughs> in one, in one single episode. <laughs> Thanks so much to Brett for bringing the heat. Thanks to Ben Montgomery for the soundtrack. And thanks to you for listening, subscribing, and rating the podcast. As always, I love a hot take or a hot guest. So send it my way at Telekinetic Show on Twitter or telekineticshow.com. Take it easy, y'all.